0: Thank you for joining us again on First Chapter. This is Upendo Books. Today, we're going to be reading from Americana by Chimanda Ngozi Adichie. Chapter 1. Princeton, in the summer, smelled of nothing. And although Efemelu liked the tranquil greenness of the many trees, the clean streets and stately homes, the delicately overpriced shops, and the quiet, abiding air of earned grace, it was this the lack of a smell that most appealed to her. Perhaps because the other American cities she knew well had all smelled distinctly, Philadelphia had the musty scent of history, New Haven smelled of neglect, Baltimore smelled of brine, and Brooklyn of sun-warmed garbage. But Princeton had no smell. She liked taking deep breaths here. She liked watching the locals who drove with pointed courtesy and parked their latest model cars outside the organic grocery store on Nasu Street, or outside the sushi restaurant, or outside the ice cream shop that had 50 different flavors including red pepper, or outside the post office where effusive staff bounded out to greet them at the entrance. She liked the campus, grave with knowledge, the gothic buildings with their vice vice-laced walls, and the way everything transformed in the half-light of the night into a ghostly scene. She liked, most of all, that In this place of affluent ease, she could pretend to be someone else. Someone specially admitted into the hallowed American club. Someone adorned with certainty. But she did not like that she had to go to Trenton to braid her hair. It was unreasonable to expect a braiding salon in Princeton. The few black locals she had seen were so light-skinned and lank-haired, she could not imagine them wearing braids. And yet, as she waited at Princeton Junction Station for the train, On an afternoon ablaze with heat, she wondered why there was no place where she could braid her hair. The chocolate bar in her handbag had melted. A few other people were waiting on the platform, all of them white and lean in short, flimsy clothes. The man standing closest to her was eating an ice cream cone. She had always found it a little irresponsible the eating of an ice cream cones by grown-up American men, especially eating of ice cream cones by grown-up American men in public. He turned to her and said, About time. When the train finally creaked in, with the familiarity of strangers adopt with each other after sharing in the disappointment of a public service, she smiled at him. The graying hair on the back of his head was swept forward, a comical arrangement to disguise his bald spot. He had to be an academic, but not in humanities, where he would be more self-conscious. A firm science, chemistry, A firm firm science like chemistry, maybe. Before, she would have said, I know, the peculiar American expression professed agreement rather than knowledge. And then she would have started a conversation with him to see if he would say something she could use in her blog. People were flattered to be asked about themselves, and if she said nothing after they spoke, it made them say more. They were conditioned to fill silences. If they asked what she did, she would just say vaguely, I write a lifestyle blog, because saying I write an anonymous blog called Race Tenth, or Various Observation About American Blacks, those formerly known as Negroes, by a non-American black, would make them uncomfortable. She had said it, though, a few times. Once, to a dreadlocked white man who sat next to her on the train, his hair like old twine ropes that ended in a blonde fuzz, His tattered shirt worn with enough piety to convince her that he was a social warrior and might make a good guest blogger. Race is totally overhyped these days. Black people need to get over themselves. It's all about class now, the haves and the have-nots, he told her evenly. And she used it as the opening sentence of a post entitled, Not all dreadlocked white guys are down. There was the man from Ohio. was squeezed next to her on a flight a middle manager she was sure from his boxy suit and contrast collar. he wanted to know what she meant by lifestyle blog and she told him expecting him to become reserved or to end the conversation by saying something defensively bland like the only race that matters is the human race but he said ever write about adoption nobody wants black babies in this country and i don't mean biracial i mean black even the black families don't want them He told her that he and his wife adopted a black child and the neighbors looked at them as though they had chosen to become martyrs for a dubious cause. Her blog post about him, Badly dressed white middle managers from Ohio are not always what you think, had received the highest number of comments for that month. (laughs) She still wondered, If he had read it, she hoped so. Often, she would sit in cafes or in airports or train stations, watching strangers, imagining their lives, and wondering which of them were likely to have read her blog. Now her ex-blog. She had written the final post only days ago, trailed by 274 comments so far. All those readers growing month by month, linking and cross-posting, knowing so much more than she did, they had always frightened and exhilarated her. Safek Derrida, one of the most frequent posters, wrote, I'm a bit surprised of how personally I am taking this. Good luck as you pursue the unnamed lifestyle change, but please come back to the blogs for soon. You've used your irreverent, hectoric, hectoring, funny, and thought-provoking voice to create a space for real conversations about an important subject. Readers like Safek Derrida who reeled off statistics and used words like rarefy, in their comments made Ephemalu nervous, eager to be fresh and to impress, so that she began over time to feel like a vulture hacking into the carcass of people's stories for something she could use, sometimes making fragile links to race, sometimes not believing herself. The more she wrote, the less sure she became. Each post scraped off yet one more scale of self until she felt naked and false. The ice cream-eating man beside her on the train, and to discourage conversation, She stared fixedly at a brown stain near her feet, spilled frozen frappuccino until they arrived at Trenton. The platform was crowded with black people, many of them fat in short flimsy clothes. It still startled her what a difference a few minutes on train travel made. During her first year in America, when she took New Jersey Transit to Penn Station and then the subway to visit Aunt Uju in Flatlands, she was struck by how mostly slim white people got on and off stops in Manhattan and as the train went further into Brooklyn, the people left were mostly black and fat. She had not thought of them as fat though, she had thought of them as big because one of the first thing her friend Ginka told her was that fat in America was a bad word, heaving with moral judgment like stupid or bastard and not a mere description like short or tall. She had banished fat from her vocabulary, but fat came back to her last winter, after almost 13 years, when a man in line behind her at the supermarket muttered, Fat people don't need to be eating that shit. As she paid for her giant bag of Tostitos, she glanced at him, surprised, mildly offended, and thought thought that it would make a perfect blog, how the stranger had decided she was fat, she would file the post under tag, race, gender, and body size. But back home, she stood and faced the mirror's truth. She realized she had ignored for too long the new tightness of her clothes, the rubbing together of her inner thighs, the softer, rounder parts that shook when she moved. She was fat. She said the word fat slowly, funneling it back and forward, and thought about all the other things she had learned not to say aloud in America. She was fat. She was not curvy or big boned. She was That it was only word that rang true. And she had ignored too the cement in her soul. Her blog was doing well with thousands of unique visitors each month, but she was earning good speaking fees, and she had a fellowship at Princeton with a relationship and a relationship with Blaine. You are the absolute love of my life, he'd written her in her last birthday card. And yet there was cement in her soul. It had been there for a while. An early morning disease of fatigue, a bleakness, a borderlessness. It brought with it amorphous longings, shapeless desires, brief imagery glints of other lives she could be living. It brought with it amorphous longings, shapeless desires, brief imaginary glints of other lives she could be living that over the months melded into a piercing homesickness. She scoured Nigerian websites, Nigerian profiles on Facebook, Nigerian blogs, and each click brought yet another story of a young person who had recently moved back home. Clothed in American or British degrees to start an investment company, a music production business, a fashion label, a magazine, or a fast food franchise, she looked at photographs of these men and women and felt the dull ache of loss, as though they had prissed upon her hand and taken something of hers. They were living her life. Nigeria became where she was supposed to be, the only place she could sink her roots in without the constant urge to tug them out and shake off the soil. And of course, there was also Ubinze, her first love, her first lover, the only person with whom she had ever felt the need to explain herself. He was now a husband and father. They had not been in touch for years, yet she could not pretend that he was not a part of her homesickness or that she did not often think of him, sifting through their past, looking for portents of what she could not name. The rude stranger in the supermarket who knew what problems he was wrestling with, haggard and thin-lipped as he was, had intended to offend her, but instead prodded her awake. She began to plan and dream, to apply for jobs in Lagos. She did not tell Blaine at first because she wanted to finish her fellowship at Princeton. And then, after her fellowship ended, she did not tell him because she wanted to give herself time to be sure. But as the weeks passed, she knew she would never be sure. So, she told him that she was moving back home and she added, I have to, knowing he would hear her words, the sound of an ending. Why? Blaine asked, almost automatically, stunned by her announcement. There they were, in his living room in New Haven. A wash in soft jazz and daylight. And she looked at him, her good, bewildered man, and felt the day take on a sad, epic quality. They had lived together for three years, three years free, free of crease like a smoothly iron sheet, until their only fight months ago when Blaine's eyes froze with blame and he refused to speak to her. But they had survived that fight mostly because of Barack Obama. Bonding anew over their shared passion on election night before Blaine kissed her, His face wept with tears, He held her tightly as though Obama's victory was also their personal victory. And now, here she was telling him it was over. Why? He asked. He taught ideas of nuance and complexity in the classes, and yet he was asking for a single reason, the cause. But she had not had a bold epiphany, and there was no cause. It was simply the layer of discontent had settled her and formed a mass that now propelled her. She did not tell him this, because it would hurt him to know she had felt that way for a while. That her relationship with him was like a being, constant in the house, but always sitting by the window and looking out. "'Take the plant,' he said to her, on the last day she saw him. When she was packing her clothes she left in his apartment, looked defeated, standing slump-shouldered in the kitchen. It was his houseplant, hopeful green leaves rising from three bamboo stems, and when she took it, a sudden crushing loneliness raced through her and stayed with her for weeks. Sometimes she still felt it. How was it possible to miss something that you no longer wanted? Blaine needed what she was unable to give and she needed what he was unable to give. And she grieved this, the loss of what could have been. So there she was, on a day filled with opulence of summer, about to braid her hair for the journey home. Sticky heat sat on her skin. There were people thrice her size on the Trenton platform and she looked admiringly at one of them, a woman in a very short skirt She thought nothing of the slender legs shown off in miniskirts. It was safe and easy, after all, to display legs of which the world approved. But the fat woman's act was about the quiet conviction that one shared only with oneself, a sense of rightness that others failed to see. Her decision to move back was similar. Whenever she felt besieged with doubts, she would think of herself as standing valiantly alone, as almost heroic, so as to squash her uncertainty. The fat woman was co-coordinating a group of teenagers who looked 16 to 17 years old. They crowded around the summer program advertised on the front and back of their yellow t-shirts, laughing and talking. They reminded the Lou of her cousin Deke. One of the boys, dark and tall, with the leanly muscled build of an athlete, looked just like Deke. Not that Deke would ever wear those shoes that looked like Esperaldas, weak kicks, he would often call them. It was a new one. He had first used it a few days ago when he told her about going shopping with Auntie Uju. Mom wanted to buy me these crazy shoes. Come on, cuz. You know I don't wear them little wacky kicks. If Philemon joined the taxi line outside the station, she hoped the driver would not be a Nigerian because he, once he heard her accent, would either be aggressively eager to tell her that he had a master's degree, the taxi was a second job, and his daughter was on the dean's list at Rutgers, or we would drive in sullen silence, giving her change and ignoring her thank you all the time while nursing who a uh, humiliation that his fellow nigerian a small girl at that who perhaps was a nurse or an accountant or even a doctor was looking down on him nigerian taxi drivers in america were all convinced that they were not really taxi drivers she was next in line her taxi driver was black and middle-aged she opened the door and glassed the back of the driver's seat Mervyn Smith, not Nigerian, but you could never be too sure. Nigerians took all sorts of names, even (laughs) she had once been somebody else. How are you doing, the man asked. She could tell right away with relief his accent was Caribbean. I'm very well, thank you. She gave him the address of Hair, African Hair Braiding. It was her first time at the salon. Her regular one was closed because the owner had gone back to Côte d'Ivoire to get married. But it would look, she was sure, like all of that African hair braid salon she had known. They were in the part of the city that had graffiti, dank buildings and no white people. They displayed bright signboards with names like Aisha and Fatima African hair braiding. They had radiators that were too hot in the winter and air conditioners that did not cool in the summer. And they were full of Francophone West African women braiders one of whom would be the owner and speak the best English and answer the phone and be deferred to by others. Often there was a baby tied to someone's back with a piece of cloth, or a toddler sleep on a wrapper spread over a battered sofa. Sometimes older children stopped by. The conversations were loud and swift in French or Wolof or Malinke. And when they spoke English to customers, it was broken, curious, as though they had not quite earned, eased into the language itself before taking slangy Americanism. Words came out half completed. Once a, a Bill braider in Philadelphia, I told the film Lou, I'm like, I got, I submit. It took many repetitions for a film Lou to understand what the woman was saying. I'm like, oh God, I was so mad. Mervyn Smith was upbeat and chatty. He talked as he drove about how hot it was, how rolling blackouts were sure to come. This is the kind of heat that is the old folks. It they don't out the of air conditioning. They had to go down the mall, you know They mall like free air conditioning But sometimes, there's nobody to take them People have to take care of the old folks, he said his jolly and by Ephemilu's silence We're here, he said, parking in front of the shabby shack The salon was in the middle Between a Chinese restaurant called Happy Joy And a convenience store that sold lottery tickets Inside, the room was thick with disregard the paint peeling, the walls plastered with large posters of braided hairstyles and some smaller posters that said quick tax refund. Three women, all in t-shirts and knee-length shorts were working on the hair of Sita's customers. A small TV mountain on the corner of the wall, the volume a little too loud, was showing a Nigerian film, a man beating his wife, the wife cowering and shouting, the poor audio quality jarring. Hi, Ifri said. They all turned to look at her, but only one, who had to be the Marimia said Hi, welcome I'd like to get braids What kind of braids do you want? Efimilou said she wanted a a medium kinky twist And asked how much it was 200, Minima said I paid 160 last month She had last braided her hair Three months ago Minima said nothing for a while Her eyes backed on her hair said 160, Efimilou said Marima shrugged and smiled. Okay, but you have to come back next time. Sit down and wait for Aisha. She will be finished soon. Marima pointed at the smallest one of the braiders who had skin condition, pinkish cream whorls of discoloration on her arms and neck that looked worryingly infectious. Hi, Aisha, Efimilou said. Aisha glanced at Efimilou, nodding ever so slightly, her face blank, almost forbidding in its expressionlessness. There was something strange about her. A film was that close to the door. The fan on the chip table was turned on high, but did little for the stuffiness in the room. Next to the fan were combs, packets of hair attachments, magazines, bulky with loose pages, piles of colorful DVDs. A broom was propped in one corner near the piles of colorful DVDs, candy dispenser, and rusty chair that had been used in a hundred years. On the TV screen, a father was beating two children, wooden punches that hit the air above their heads. No, bad father, bad man! The other braider says, staring at the TV and flinching. You from Nigeria? You know I'm asked? Yes. said, where are you from? And thank you for joining us for the first chapter. This is Appendo Books. See you next time.